Well, it's good to be back this week after a week away last week in Southern California. That is the annual WHW conference. For those of you who don't know, the WHW stands for the initials of the last names of the three men who began that conference. It is a week-long conference dedicated to teaching pastors skills in Bible study, the original languages, and expository teaching methods. And most of these men do not have any kind of formal uh, Bible college or seminary training, and if they do have that, they don't have any kind of formal training in the languages. So it's certainly uh, important uh, for this. It's a ministry that's primarily to for black pastors, although the last couple of years there's been one or two uh, white pastors who've shown up. There were probably 11 or 1,200 in attendance this year. And I taught, as usual, about eight or nine hours a day. Uh, this year they changed up a little bit. Instead of four hours every morning, it was only three hours every morning. So I think it was only five hours a day, plus two nights where you have a church service one night and a banquet another night. So I got in from teaching my afternoon class at 530 had to be, had changed clothes and be at a reception at six, banquet at seven, got, the banquet was over at eleven and had a meeting afterwards that ended at one, and got up the next morning at six so I could prepare to teach. So I always come back well rested, relaxed, and then you have the three hour time zone change, so it I can really tell a difference from the first year I began doing this, which was only five or six years ago. And now, now that I'm over 50, you know, it's not, I don't rebound quite as much as I used to. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess in silence your sins to God the Father, And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to continue our study of origins in Genesis chapter 3 and understanding more about the consequences of sin. Father, we pray that as we study these things this evening that you would give us a a better understanding of the implications of sin as it uh, permeates everything that we do in all aspects of our life. We pray that you would also help us to understand the importance of relying upon your grace and the total sufficiency of your grace provision for us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we are in the section that is commonly referred to as the curse, Although, as I have pointed out last time, it isn't the penalty for sin. It it expresses the consequences of the penalty for sin. 
Just a couple of points in review. We have to remember, number one, that the penalty for sin is spiritual death. The penalty for sin is not physical death. The penalty for sin is spiritual death. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God told Adam that of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The day that they ate of the fruit is the day that God confronted them with their sin in the garden. This began in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We studied that, showing that their hiding was based on fear. Fear indicates the presence of sin nature, emotional sin, fear of consequences, so that at that point they are spiritually dead, and they are not physically dead. Adam does not die physically for 930 years. So the curse, point number two, the curse, which is uh, the articulation by God of the consequences for sin, which begins begins in verse 14, actually outlines the results or consequences of sin on all of the dimensions of creation. Looking at the creation itself, the inanimate creation, the impact of the curse on animals in on the planet, the impact of the curse specifically is outlined on the serpent in verse 14 and 15, then to the woman in verses 17, or the, to the woman in verse 16, the serpent in 14 and 15, the woman in verse 16, and the man, Adam, in verse 17 through 19. And then we have closure to this episode as they are expelled from the garden in verses 20 to 24. So what we see here is that human sin, this is very important, human sin did not just affect the human race, it affects all of creation. Human sin didn't just affect the human race, it affected all of creation. All of nature is transformed as a result of Adam's sin. The other corollary principle to this is that any sin that we commit has reverberating consequences far beyond our comprehension, even though we may not uh, immediately perceive those consequences. Remember, the sin that Adam and Eve committed was not a sin of gross immorality. It was not a sin of violence. It was not a sin of perversion. It was not a sin that any of us normally think of as great and gross sins. It was a simple act of eating a piece of fruit, but the act itself was in disobedience to the command of God. So sin is ultimately defined as any thought, word, or deed that violates the character of God. Any thought, word, or deed that violates the character of God, and whether that is in relative uh, comparison an act that is extreme or mild, does not matter. What we see here is that any act that violates the character of God has consequences that reverberate throughout the universe. So their sin changes all of creation, has some impact of all of creation. Then we begin to outline the 
The curse itself is addressed to the serpent beginning in verse 14, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Now, what we see here is that the, the curse itself or the effects of, of the man's sin is going to impact nature, specifically the serpent, but it is not limited to the serpent. We read in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, that is to uh, tempt the man. And it, although it is addressed to the serpent, what we must realize is that God is addressing Satan, the fallen angel, who uh, in, used the serpent as, a, as the agent for tempting Adam and Eve. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. You are cursed more than all cattle. And here we have the Hebrew word, arur. Now we have seen that there is a play on words here. There is a play on words here, A-R-U-R. That's how it's spelled. That this is a play on words with the word that is used, arurim, which is the word that is used for uh, being naked. So there's obviously a pun here, and the nakedness has to do with exposure, and exposure uh, brings exposure to sin brings on a curse. Because you have done this, you are cursed. And then we have an interesting phrase. It is a comparative phrase in the Hebrew. And it begins with the Hebrew comparative particle men, M-I-N, and literally it means from. You have been cursed from all the beasts, and this would represent the wild animals, and all the living things of the field. Now that's a little different from what you have in your English translation. The English translation usually pulls these two together under one noun, but actually you have two categories in the Hebrew. All the beasts and from all the living things of the field. And the fact that you have a repetition of the Preposition men plus the uh, adjective coal indicating all indicates that they're not a synonymous category. He's not saying all the beasts of the field and all the living things of the field. The, this final clause of the field, which relates to domestic animals, does not modify the noun uh, Behama, which is the noun for beasts. So there is a, uh, this indicates that the curse goes not simply to the serpent, but he is cursed uh, more than, it's a comparative uh, adverb there, more, or comparative adjective there, more than all the cattle and more than every uh, uh, more than all the all the beasts and more than all the living things of the field so it shouldn't be translated cattle the cattle is a domestic animal it is uh the the first word beasts indicates wild animals the second category the living things of the field indicates the domestic animals so the way it's translated in some bibles is 
indicates just the reverse of what the uh, original text says. Now, this indicates that all of nature, not just the serpent, is impacted by by the by the fall. We go to passages such as Romans eight twenty, which says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse twenty two of Romans eight. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So the point is that everything is impacted, all of the animals are impacted, and we know that in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, that this curse is rolled back. The lion will lie down with the lamb. A child will be able to put his hand into a serpent's den. And that indicates that there will no longer be uh, any level of antagonism in the animal kingdom. And one of the consequences of this curse on the animal kingdom is it changed their structure, their, uh, morph- their physical morphology. And this is seen in the serpent it- him- itself. On your belly you shall go, indicating that there is a change from an upright posture to a crawling posture. So there is a physiological change that takes place on the serpent. We can extrapolate that knowing that uh, all of the uh, herbs and all of the grasses were given for the animals to eat on. We know that all of the animals were originally herbivores or gramnivorous and as a result of the fall, some became carnivores. So there is a physiological change that takes place in these animals. And then we read, and you shall eat dust, and you shall eat dust. Now, the term dust, eating dust, is not a description of the fact that the serpent's going to be crawling through the the mud and the dirt and the dust, and is not talking about the fact that he will be eating dust. This is a figure of speech, and it is a metaphor in ancient Near Eastern language for defeat and for cursing. In Psalm 72.9, we read, Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. Isaiah 49.23 uses the phrase, And lick up the dust of your feet. Micah 7.17, They shall lick the dust like a serpent. And all of these are phrases that indicate judge, some sort of judgment and defeat on someone. This same figure of speech, the idea of dust, is also found in ancient Near Eastern literature of the time, in the uh, Babylonian myth, the descent of Ishtar to the netherworld. Those who are cursed and damned after death live in a place where, quote, dust is their fair and clay is their food. So this was a common idiom in the ancient world that dust was, or eating dust, was a sign of defeat and a sign of being cursed. So the serpent is told that he will have a change in the way he moves around. He won't travel on on uh, upright anymore, but will crawl on the scuts of his belly. And he shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then in verse 15, we have the first mention of the gospel in the Old Testament. And the first mention 
indication of the gospel, rather, in verse 15, is mirrored by what God does in clothing Adam and his wife in verse 21. So he says here, I will put enmity or antagonism between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So here he is addressing the serpent, and here you have the serpent and the serpent's seed, and over here you have the woman and the woman's seed. Now, the serpent's seed is a reference to the Antichrist ultimate reference to the Antichrist, who is indwelt by Satan. And it is ultimately, all of this is addressed to Satan, who is the antagonist against the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman. Now, the seed of the woman is going to be wounded on the heel this is a non-mortal wound. This is what happened at the cross. Satan thought that he was accomplishing a tremendous victory by having the Messiah crucified, rejected and crucified, and yet that very act when he thought he had won the battle turned out to be the stroke that accomplished his defeat because that was a fatal head wound. This is a fatal wound, indicating that the serpent would be destroyed. So we're told in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, that is a fatal wound, and you shall bruise his heel. So this verse foreshadows the fact that God in his grace will accomplish salvation. See, the message here is not simply that man has messed up, that man has broken God's commandment, that man is now subject to divine punishment. He will be punished by God, but the message here is that God in His grace provides the solution, that even at the instant of His announcing the consequences for sin, God provides the perfect solution, and it's a grace solution. It is not dependent upon who man is or what man does. It is not dependent on human righteousness. It is going to be based on God's very own righteousness. So we just get a glimpse, a foreshadowing of that salvation in verse 15. Then in verse 16 we read, To the woman, he said. So now we have a change of subject, and we're going to advance to the consequences to the woman. The consequences to the woman. And here we read, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, in the passage that I am, I just quoted, that was from the New King James translation, and it makes it sound as if there are two things happening there. I will multiply your sorrow and your conception. New American Standard, I believe, translates it more accurately. I will greatly multiply your sorrow or your pain in your conception. And that is a more accurate translation. But before we get to that point, we need to understand this concept of multiplication. 
This is the Hebrew verb Rava. R-A-B-A-H, which means to increase or to multiply. It could even have the meaning of intensify. It may or may not suggest that there would already be pain with labor, but I suggest that it does not imply that. The idea here is not so much pain. We have to then, after we get the idea that there's going to be an increase or an intensification here, it doesn't mean that there would already be this, but that this is going to be, there will now be an intensified pain or an intense pain associated with uh, childbearing. The word the New King James translates sorrow, that's really a bad translation, is the Hebrew word itzivon, and it looks like this. In the Hebrew, I-T-Z-T-Z-E-B-O-N. It's a bone, and it comes from the root verb, atsav. Okay, it should be, that should be a V here. It's a bone, I-T-Z-T-Z-E-V as in Victor, V-O-N. It's a bone, and it has the idea, this noun, which is only used in this form three times in the Hebrew Old Testament, can be translated as sorrow, toil, labor, hardship, difficulty, the main idea of the root verb is the idea of either physical or emotional sorrow and toil. It can refer to mental discomfort or physical discomfort. It can refer to anguish. And sometimes it can refer to sorrow or even anger. So the main idea in this word group is the idea of something that is difficult, painful, something that is unpleasant. It may be physical or it may be mental, but it is definitely indicating something uh, something that was not there before because they were in perfect environment. So now the woman is told that there is going to be a curse related to the process of childbearing. Now remember, in the original mandates in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the man and the woman were told that they were going to rule over nature. And what they're just indicating is that nature is now going to be changed because of sin. That was the curse against the serpents and the rest of nature. Now we're going to see that there is also a uh, another curse related to childbearing, or there are consequences related to childbearing. When we use the word curse, let me explain what curse means. Curse is not this kind of mystical, magical, witchcraft sort of sense where I'm putting a curse on you. A curse in the Bible simply refers to negative, harsh judgment. It's the consequences, the wrong or evil consequences from an action. 
So that's what we mean by curse. God doesn't put a curse on man like you see in some fables or, or some myths where some god or goddess curses somebody and that, it's not that idea at all. This, this is expressing the consequences of sin throughout history. So whereas in perfect environment the woman, the man and the woman were to uh, be fruitful and multiply and have many children, now there is going to be labor, hardship, sorrow, toil associated with giving birth. It doesn't mean they, they aren't still engaged in that initial mandate from God, but the problem is it is now toilsome. It is difficult. There will be pain and sorrow associated with the attempt to overcome it. And then we think also of what happens in the eternal state, that there will be no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain, for the old things will be done away with. So there will be a reversal of this in the eternal state. Once we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, and then living in eternity, there will be no more pain, and it will be as it was in the original perfect environment of the garden. So we read that God says, I will increase or intensify toil in your conception. The construction in the Hebrew is what's called a hendiadis, where you have two nouns linked together by a conjunction, and they are not two separate things. They are the same thing. So there is an intensification of toil or labor or uh, pain in the conception, in in the pregnancy. And literally the word translated for uh, conception here is the uh, Hebrew word, is the Hebrew word uh, haran, H-A-R-A-N. And this indicates not simply conception, although it may be limited to that in some passages, it is also used in a number of passages to indicate the entire uh, pregnancy. And so what this passage is saying is that I will intensify pain in your pregnancy. So it's not just talking about the uh, conception, which would just be at the beginning, and usually we don't think of conception as being something that's painful. Uh, pregnancy starts being painful, I understand, towards the end, and a lot of discomfort, and then especially during the delivery stage. And then we have in the... Uh, development of the thought in the parallelism of the next phrase, the word in pain again. And this time it picks up another form of that noun. Remember the previous form. The previous form used the, the noun et sevan. And now we're going to use a parallel, I mean it's a cognate noun, et sev. And the difference is E-T-Z-E-V. So you can see that this T-Z and the V, and this, what looks like an apostrophe to you, that's actually a, a soft glottal mark, those are the consonants. That should be a V there. E-T-Z-E-V, that, uh, and it begins with uh, like a opening single quote. That is the same in each of these words. 
And that is the root concept. And all you do is change the vowel points around, and that changes it from a noun to a verb, different parts of speech. So there's a thread that runs through here, and that is the idea of pain, toil, and difficulty. This is the same word that we're going to find, and if you're writing in your Bible, you could circle this word for, that's translated sorrow, or pain, or toil, however it's translated in your version, in verse 16. And down in verse 17, when God addresses Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That is the same word here, etzevan. So there is clearly a theme running through here that sin not only brought the spiritual death consequences, but it also brought misery and toil and pain into human existence. And see, people often say, well, how can I trust that God is a loving God when there's so much pain and toil and misery and suffering and famine and warfare in the world? And the Bible clearly explains it. God did not create the world that way. God created the world perfect, but he gave man volition. And man abused his responsibility and used his volition in a wrong way, and because of man's wrong choices, he brought toil and misery and pain and hardship into existence. So the woman is told that she will, that God says, I will intensify your uh, toil in your pregnancy. Then secondly, in pain, you shall bring forth or give birth to children. So that indicates that there is now pain associated. This is not indicating that she is just now being able to have children. That would indicate the children are part of the curse. And throughout the Bible, the theme is that children are a blessing. The psalmist says that the blessed is the man who has many children. So we have the idea here of negative consequences associated with fulfilling that original dominion mandate of being fruitful, to be fruitful and to multiply. So in pain you shall bring forth children, and then, and that's the first problem. So the woman is going to deal, have really three problems. As a result of her part in the sin, her first problem is there is going to be pain and toil associated with giving birth. Second problem is she is going to enter into an authority conflict with the male. This is the beginning of the war of the sexes. There is going to be a uh, ongoing authority conflict with the male. And we said that her desire shall be for her husband. Now, you may have been taught this in the past, that the desire here is a sexual desire. And there are many men who, in arrogance, think that somehow their, their wife is, or should be all hot for their body, and they try to go to this passage to intimidate their uh, wife into thinking that they should have this strong sexual desire for them. And there are a number of commentaries that have supported that over the years. The problem is that there are several different words for desire and lust in Scripture. This is not one that relates to uh, physical or sexual uh, desire. This is the Hebrew word teshuka. Teshuka, T 
T-E-S-H-U-Q-A-H. And this word is used only three times in the Bible. It's used twice in Genesis. It's used once in the Song of Solomon. Now, the one rule of any kind of Bible study or any kind of word study is that the way a word is used by the same author or in the same time period takes precedence over a word that is used by another author in another kind of literature in another uh, in another generation. The Song of Solomon uses this word in order to get a parallel for uh, love over in Song of Solomon. But three things are important to note. First of all, Song of Solomon is written uh, some uh, three thousand, probably three thousand years or two thousand years later, depending on whether you're thinking in terms of Mosaic authorship or whether. Moses is using records that were written beforehand, and he's using those records. Now, I believe that that these Toledot sections, the generation or history sections that we've talked about in Genesis, were written by Adam and by Noah, by Abraham and others, and that data was available to Moses, and he was the final editor who put all of that together in the final form of the Pentateuch, as the Jews were about to invade the land of Canaan. So this is not a word that Moses would have originated as much as it was a word that could have gone back into antiquity. But let's say Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, coins this word or uses this in his time. That would have been in roughly 1400 B.C., so that's still uh, five to 600 years before Solomon. Words change over a period of time. So it's a different time period, it's a different author, and it's a different type of literature. Uh, Song of Solomon is romantic poetry, and this is not. There, All of those factors affect words. But we do have a parallel use of this word in Genesis chapter 4 uh, by the very same author. By this very same author in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And for many of you, that's just going to be a look across the page or to the next page. And the situation in Genesis 4, 7 is that Cain has been angered by God's acceptance of Abel's offering. And Cain is fit to be tied. He's very angry. Verse 5, his countenance fell. He's depressed. He's angry. He's upset. And and God confronts him with his sin in verse 6 and says to him, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, notice God is speaking here, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. And there's that word desire again, and it's the same word that we have in Genesis 3, uh, 16. And it is a desire to control, a desire to dominate. Now, every now and then I'll find somebody who hears this and they don't want to accept this. And they say, well, I was, that's because they were just much happier with the idea that this would have something to do with the woman's desire for the husband. The problem is we have to think in terms of context. What we see in the context of Genesis 3:14 through 19 is a list of negative consequences for sin. If this is not a negative consequence, it's the if this is 
physical desire or sexual desire in a positive sense, then it's the only positive result of sin. And I don't think we really want to follow that to its logical conclusion because that would have damaging a damaging influence on how we understood the role and purpose of sex. That would somehow uh, diminish it. So it's just excluded not only by word study, but it's excluded by context. Context argues for something negative. So the woman is told that she would have a desire to rule, to dominate, to control her husband, and in contrast, he is going to want to rule over you. And this is the Hebrew word, mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L, and that means to rule, and are also the idea of to dominate, and it has the uh, connotation in many passage, passages of a tyrannical use of authority. So there we see that man and woman in their raw sin nature state are in a condition of warfare. The woman wants to run the house, the man wants to dominate her. And there's only one thing that turns that around, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and regeneration and then spiritual growth. That is what changes this. But this is the natural orientation. Ladies, it's not pretty. Your natural orientation is to run your husband. Your natural orientation, when he says, I'd like to, for us to do this, you say, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. Where in the world did he come up with that? I'm not going to do that. There it comes. And what transforms this is going to be regeneration and sanctification. And the reverse comes and is seen in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. This is why wives are told to submit to your husbands. Have you ever wondered why it is that in Ephesians 5, 22 and following, the wife is told to submit to her husband and the husband is told to love the wife as Christ loved the church? If you don't put that in context of Genesis 3, 15, you won't understand it. The woman is told to submit to the husband because her basic problem is that she wants to run the husband. The husband is told to love the wife as Christ loved the church, that is, as a servant, because his basic orientation is to tyrannize the wife. See, it works both ways. And apart from the grace of God and apart from Bible doctrine, that's exactly the way every marriage is going to go. Every marriage is going to trend toward misery and towards a power struggle because of the orientation of the sin nature. The only thing that's going to reverse that is going to be the grace of God and uh, doctrine in the soul and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, Ephesians 5.22 and following, which outlines the fact that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives, just comes four verses, count them, Four verses after the command to be filled by means of the Spirit. So if you're filled by means of the Spirit, one of the evidences of that is that the woman is showing signs and sanctification of reversing that. When your husband comes up with the craziest, stupidest decision you heard of and says, this is what we're going to do, you're going to say, lead on, I'm right behind you. 
You're not going to say, lead on, it's your responsibility, you're going to take the hit. See, that's not how you handle it. See, you don't, you don't jab him in there. You know, your job is to say, that's right, I'm, I'm right behind you, you're the leader. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to learn how to tactfully, gently, in a non-confrontational manner, suggest that, well, maybe there's another option. But as two people learn to live together and grow together, if you have any sense, and most women that, that I meet have a, have a lot more sensitivity than guys do, and so as you're living with this guy, you're going to understand when you can gently, calmly suggest that perhaps he should consider another option, and you're going to know when, no, you don't do that. You just follow him and let him take the hit. But the Bible doesn't give you an alternative and say, well, you know, this is going to cost us $10,000. I'm not going to do it. Whatever you perceive the consequences to be, the Bible doesn't give you an escape hatch and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to submit to his leadership. He is the one in charge. He is the leader. Now, men don't get off scot-free on this thing. They have to love their wife as Christ loved the church, and that's a pretty tough model to follow. And usually I'm a lot tougher on the men than I am on the ladies because the men are the leaders. They're the ones who are ultimately accountable for what takes place in the home. And they're the one that are, they're going to be held, they're the ones who are going to be held responsible. And the man, even though they they sit there sometimes and they sort of chortle and chuckle and say, "Mm -hmm, I've been telling her she's been trying to run the house and wear the pants in the family for a long time, and uh, you don't get away because your problem is you want to dominate. It's your style of leadership that is also a problem that men want to dominate the woman and just run over her. Both extremes are part of the curse. So the woman has three things that are the consequences of sin that she has to deal with. The first is that there's going to be pain and sorrow in pregnancy. The second is that she is going to have a desire to dominate uh, her husband. And the third is that he is going to want to tyrannize her. So that's the consequences of sin for the woman. Now let's look at the man. Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. So God makes sure Adam understands the issue. Notice he did not explain the why in terms of either the serpent or the woman because they weren't the, determ- the determinative decision. The determinative decision was made by Adam as the head of the race. And he is confronted, because you listen to the voice of your wife. Now, just remember that, women. You wives out there, when you tell your husband, you, you know, he says, this is the policy of the home, this is what we're going to do, and you say, no, I don't want to do that, I think we ought to do that, do this other thing, you come up with another alternative, don't put him in the same trap that Adam was in, that if he listens to your voice, then if things go south, it's your fault, because you're the one who stepped out of line. Okay. God explains to Adam that if he didn't listen or obey, and the idea here, the idiom, he did the voice of your wife, is the idea of obeying the voice of his wife. See, you had a reversal take place in authority in the fall. 
the woman, instead of exercising dominion over the serpent, obeyed the serpent, listened to the serpent. The man, instead of exercising authority over his wife, listened to the wife. So there, in the, in the whole conglomeration of the events surrounding the fall, there were, was a role reversal and an authority reversal that was part of the whole process. And that is why there is such a problem with authority subsequent to the fall. There was authority before the fall. One commentary I read on this said that, see, the man shall rule over you, and he's trying to make something positive out of it. And he said, see, there has to be authority in the relationship, as if this is the origination of authority. There was already authority before the fall. Paul makes that clear both in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and in 1 Timothy 2.8-11 2, in terms of understanding that it's the created order that established the authority chain in the garden. So the man is told, cursed, and here we have that word again, arur, cursed is the ground for your sake. Now before the ground was blessed, he was to uh, serve in the garden. The garden was going to bring forth all manner of trees and food sufficient for the man. But now the ground is cursed, and instead of the ground automatically bringing forth the bounty of the soil and all that would be necessary for his sustenance, he now has to work for it. There is now toil. And this is our word, it's a bone again, uh, repeated to run this theme of labor, hardship, difficulty, anguish, discomfort. It's the consequence of sin. In toil you shall eat of it. In other words, if you want to eat, you have to work for it. This is a divine principle. I know that there are some Democrats and some welfare-oriented people who don't know that. They think that somehow Republicans invented this idea that you have to work for your food. But no, Adam invented it by disobeying God. See, the biblical principle is if you don't work, you don't eat. And that runs through all of nature, but man wants to rebel against that principle and provide a free lunch. But there is no free lunch. Nothing is free, not even salvation. Somebody pays. Christ paid the price on the cross. We can't do it. He paid the total price. So... Man has to work for food now. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I don't see, gee, I didn't see retirement in there. All the days of your life until you go on Social Security, and then you can just sit back and live off of the work of somebody else. That must be in another manuscript. Now, all the days of your life you are to work. It is difficult. There's toil. There's now conflict with nature. Verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. There were no thorns and thistles, no prickly pear cactus, no saguaro cactus in the original created state. Those plants and many others like them developed as a result of the changes that occurred in botany due to Adam's curse. So here we see that not only did the curse affect the animal kingdom back in verse uh, 14, but it also affects the vegetation. It affects uh, plant life so that new, ki- new, not new kinds of plants in terms of biblical kinds, but new variations develop which are harmful and difficult. Weeds now spring up. Weeds would be classified crabgrass. All those things we fight every spring that are coming up in the yard 
All of that is included within this concept of thorns and thistles. In other words, nature itself is going to become an obstacle to man's productivity, and there will always be a struggle. Men, you've got a struggle for authority and leadership at home, and you've got a struggle for productivity in the workplace. And that is the consequence of sin. Furthermore, we're told you shall eat the herb of the field. So man was a vegetarian at this stage. He is not a, he is not a meat eater until after the flood. He is still a vegetarian. Verse 19, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And I pointed out when we did our doctrine of labor a few weeks ago, that it is only on the sweat of your brow, actually, on your, in the sweat of your face, that man has three different sweat glands, sweat glands from mental anguish, emotional uh, distress, as well as physical effort. And th- there are uh, six or seven different kinds of sweat glands in the human body. These three are located all in the forehead. So it is the idea that in the sweat of your brow, you shall eat Bread. Man is going to have to work for food till you return to the ground. And this is our first mention of physical death. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now I want you to notice that we have a list of consequences to sin. The first consequence goes to the serpent. He is cursed more than the rest of the animals. Second, on his belly he will travel. There's a change in his form. Third, there's going to be enmity between Satan and the woman. Uh, Fourth, the woman has three consequences, pain in uh, pregnancy and labor. Uh, She's going to want to dominate her husband. Sixth, Consequence of sin, the husband will want to rule, tyrannize the woman. Seventh consequence, the ground is cursed. Uh, Eighth consequence, man is going to have to toil and labor for food all the days of his life. Uh, Ninth consequence, thorns and thistles come out. Nature uh, nature uh, obstructs man's work. And then the tenth consequence is that man will go back to dust. Now, if physical death is the result of sin, I mean, it's the penalty for sin. Let's get our verbiage right. If physical death is the penalty for sin, then those other nine factors are also the penalty for sin. Now, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he did not go through labor. He didn't deal with all of these other categories of consequences. He only is separated from the Father for three hours, and between 12 noon and 3 p.m., God the Father pours out on Jesus Christ all the sins of the world, and he pays for them. When it was over with, to make sure we got the point, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this word twice in this form. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. Tetelestai. The accent is over the second syllable. Tetelestai. The duplication of this first syllable indicates that this is a perfect tense verb. Now, the implication of the perfect tense is completed action. So in John, John says, first of all, when it was complete, when it was finished, 
when it was finished, he said, I thirst. So that means at the point of that verse, whatever it was that Jesus was doing was completed before he said, I thirst. Because completed action means it's over, the action is over and done with. Now the verb itself, to telestai, means to bring to completion. So it's almost a redundancy to take a verb meaning completion and put it in the, in the perfect tense, but it emphasizes the point that whatever Jesus Christ was doing on the cross was over and done with prior to the point where he said, I thirst. And after he said, I thirst, then Jesus said to tell, to Telestai, it is finished, which indicates that the action was completed before he said that. The action, everything Jesus Christ did for our salvation then was completed before he said, I thirst. He doesn't die physically until after that. Therefore, the physical death had nothing to do with paying the price for sin. The physical death was not the redemptive factor on the cross. It was the spiritual death that occurred between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when God the Father poured out the penalty for sin on Jesus Christ so that all sin was paid for at that point in time. Now, why does he die physically? To show that he conquers the greatest consequence of sin, which is physical death, and to show that through the resurrection that God had accepted that payment. Now, let's see what happens in the next four verses. Adam names his wife. He gives her a new name now because she is going to be the mother of all living. He names his wife Eve, Chava, in the Hebrew because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. See, when they sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked and they tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves. See, that's what man tries to do with religion. All religions try to cover up the sin problem by man's efforts. In some way, man is trying to gain ultimate peace with God through his own efforts, through his own good deeds, by trying to conform to some standard of morality. But what God said is all of our works are as filthy rags. They're, they're useless. They're worthless. They have no value. They're, they're, they're not good. They don't measure up to God's standard. That even in our very best, God's standard is up here. He demands absolute perfect righteousness. Even at our very best, we only come up to here. At our worst, we're down here. And man operates totally within this scale of operation. But God demands this standard. Man can never make it. You can't be good enough, kind enough in order to meet the standard of God. Therefore, God provides the solution. Just as God provided the solution for Adam and Eve by slaying animals. Notice. This makes the animal rights activists very angry because the first person to slay animals is God. So apparently there's nothing wrong with killing an animal if the conditions are right. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. In order to get skin and make leather, you have to kill the animals. In order to kill the animals, you're going to do what? You're going to shed blood. 
this is the beginning of that blood trail through the Old Testament that pictures the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. And physical death, therefore, becomes a physical emblem or representation of what takes place in that unseen spiritual realm, the concept of spiritual death. So God provides the perfect solution to the problem, and he made tunics of skin and he clothed them. Salvation is performed by God. It is not helped or aided by man. Man cannot help God. God does everything. That's what grace is all about. And this foreshadows what would take place at the cross, that Jesus Christ was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that uh, Adam and his wife, in accepting God's provision, indicate they are saved. They understood the plan of salvation. God didn't simply give them the tunics of skin or the clothes of skin. He explained the whole concept of salvation to them, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, and here we have a conference between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. See, man wanted to be like God, and he wanted to determine what was right and what was wrong, and now he has a conscience, and he has experienced um, good and now evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden. So he is expelled from the garden. And in verse 23, verse 23, we have the PL stem of the verb garash, which means to divorce, to expel, to force out, or to evict. Or excuse me, that's in verse, verse 24. So he drove out the man. That is his eviction. So God evicted the man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. So what happens in these last three verses is that God recognizes that man, like God, knows good and evil. So he, that is he has an awareness of that standard, not that God is evil or has an experiential knowledge, his own experience with evil, but that God knows what that is. Before the fall, Adam was in, in innocence, as it were, in naivete. He had no awareness of either human good or evil. But in verse 22, God is aware of the existence of relative good and of sin. Good and evil are phrased not for that which is absolute good and uh, that which is morally uh, bankrupt or evil, but it is the good side that is human good and the evil side which is sin. And God in his omniscience is aware of their existence. Man was not aware of their existence, but now through sin he is. Now, he could apparently, theoretically, lived forever, physically, if he had eaten of the tree of life. That indicates, again, that physical death is not the penalty for sin. So God says we have to keep him from the tree of life, and we're going to evict him and eject him from the garden. To prevent man from returning to the garden, God establishes a new guard. Remember, man's original task was to guard 
the garden. He was placed in the garden to serve God and to guard it, Shamar. And now we have the cherubim uh, placed, which was a type of angel, the highest category of angel. It's placed on the east side of the garden with a flaming sword indicating judgment. Sword in the Bible always stands for judicial prerogatives. So he has a flaming sword which turned every way to guard Shamar, to guard the way to the tree of life. Now we're going to come back and look at the implications of that sword later on, but to give you a view of coming attractions, there's no delegation of judicial responsibility to the human race until after the flood. And what I believe took place in the dispensation of human conscience, which is the dispensation that extends from the fall to the flood, is that God is the one who is executing judgment on the planet through his angels. And this is what's exemplified here. Now, that's not so odd because God's going to execute judgment on the planet with angels during the tribulation. God is also going to use angels to carry out his tasks of judgment and and along with believers during the millennial kingdom. When Jesus Christ is on the throne of David in Jerusalem, during the millennial kingdom, he will use believers as well as angels to carry out the, the mandates to rule the planet. Uh, we, of course, will be higher than the angels at that time. But this is an indication that, at, at least during this early dispensation, it was a different kind of environment. You had probably the physical manifestation of angels. That's why it doesn't become too absurd when the sons of God, who are the fallen angels, take the daughters of men to be their wives in Genesis 6. Because during the environment uh, on the earth prior to the flood, men and angels had social and judicial intercourse. Well, next time we will come back and we're going to t- look at two topics that come out of our study of Genesis 3. One is the topic of total depravity, and the other is the biblical doctrine of man and nature, or what the Bible can teach us about how man is to take care of the environment. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for your opportunity you have given us to study your word this evening and to learn these things. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ said, uh, invited all those, all you that labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. There is salvation in no other name under heaven other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all human sin on the cross. Therefore, the issue is not what we have done, but the issue is what we think about Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, who became a man in order to die on the cross to pay our penalty on our behalf, so that we would not have to do anything to be saved, because He paid the price in full. He did it all, and paid for our paid for the penalty for our sin. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, just make these things clear to everyone here. In Christ's name, Amen.